the 7th of November and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 35th episode. I really had thought that by recording this podcast 48 hours after the first polls had closed in the U.S., my guest and I would be able to prognosticate about the incoming administration's policy plank. Turns out that wasn't the case for obvious reasons. So we delayed the recording to now, which is the 7th in Singapore and 6th afternoon in California. While most markers suggest that Joe Biden would be the next president of the United States, the election process is by no means over. Between late arriving ballots, provisional ballots, recounts, legal challenges, there could be days if not weeks and months before the election for the 46th president of the United States is finally settled. There's also uncertainty about the Senate balance of power, which may well last through January, But as they say, the show must go on. And hence, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Marsha Vandenberg. Marsha is an executive board director and published expert on Asia Pacific's investment and policy environment. She's a continuing fellow with the Distinguished Careers Institute at Stanford University in California. She serves on the RAND Center for Asia Pacific Policy Board. In China, she is actively engaged with the International Finance Forum, Beijing and serves on the IFF Academic Council. Marsha, welcome to Kobe Time. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. It's a nail-biting time still here in America. I'm on the West Coast in San Francisco and um, still watching the returns late at night and early in the morning, so. All over the world, including us, we're doing the same. It's been quite the election cycle and quite the few Mm -hmm. days since the polls closed. Um, right. Let's begin with the premise that everybody says that this is an historic election with very high stakes. Indeed. So walk us through that. Why is it such a big deal? Well, gosh, there are so many reasons why it's a historic election. You know, people say every election is historic, but I have to say I think this one really is for, for a number of reasons. Um, One is the historic turnout. I mean, more than 160 people, 160 million people voted. It's broken all, the turnout's broken all records for voting in the United States. Um, And uh, you've got two candidates who couldn't be more more different uh, in style, in personality, in background, across the board. I mean, Trump, a nationalist, a maverick who's unbowed by things like truth and decency and decorum, political and historical traditions. Biden, who's a career politician in many respects, a quintessential American politician, had a remarkable career, 36 years in the Senate. That's a long run. I first learned about him when he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's had eight years as vice president. He believes in things like governance, institutions, foreign policy that is normal for America. And he has seen a, he's seen a lot in his life, and he projects a sort of empathy, I think, as a result. And, uh, but the two are very, very different. And the ideas and the plans and the intentions that they have for the, for the U.S. also are very, very different, presenting Americans with a clear, clear choice. And then I might add one very um, important reason this is a historic election, too, is we have a woman of color on a national ticket for the very, very first time. And if the direction of the, of the election goes as we think it is, or at least I think it is at this point, and many others do too, that Biden will be the next president, we'll have a woman vice president 
uh, in the United States. And that's a, that's a big, a, a big step forward. So I think the, the turnout, the two candidates, the direction each candidate would take America and the fact we've got a woman on the ticket and a, and a possible woman in the White House as vice president, those make it for a very, very historic uh, election. In addition, I'd have to say that while we didn't get a clear cut answer on election night, uh, we did see something that was, I think, rather dramatic. I think this election has pulled back the curtain on a deep divide in the American body politic. And it's a divide that's not just about issues. I think it goes deeper than the issues. It may be structural. It has a lot to do with demographics. It has a lot to do with the style of this president and the ability of, of Donald Trump to keep his base very much intact and to keep his base intact by appealing to fears and fears that um, the socialists are coming to get, <laughs> coming to get the, the country. And um, uh, so it's been a very interesting uh, thing to watch uh, both. And I think the um, analysis that's gonna come out of this election in terms of the voting behavior of America is gonna be very, very re revealing and very interesting. So I'd have to say on multiple accounts that it's a historic election. We'll, we'll talk about the consequences of this historical election momentarily. Um, and, and I suppose the other reason it was also historic, as you said, that the two candidates are very different also in their policy agenda. So I want to ask you, um, let's just assume uh, for the sake of you know, clarity that Biden will be the next president of the United States, uh, perhaps not with a strong majority in the Senate, if any majority whatsoever. Uh, and so then what kind of domestic policy impact can we expect? And there's so many things, public health, we have a COVID emergency going on as we speak, and inequality, an issue that everybody has been flagging for a while, climate change, which ought to be the challenge of our generation, and then the critical need for boosting infrastructure and protecting jobs. So I've given you a long list of policy imperatives, uh, how does a president incoming or returning deal with all this? Well, it's a, it's a lot. And I think um, it's a lot magnified. And what I mean by that is um, because of these divisions in the country, there are uh, factions and discord and quarrels and um, uh, just a sense of unease that I think one of the first orders of business that's going to extend over the four years of the next president, and let's assume it is Biden, as you suggest, over the next four years uh, in the White House is to bridge some of those differences. He will have to be a true transition president, as he described himself, not in terms of time frame, but in terms of bridging helping Americans bridge the differences and reuniting Americans behind some sort of common collective purpose. But that's, that's I think, really the, the big picture as a result of this election. Let's talk about the economic, the domestic consequences uh, to your question. Um, 
I think, you know, first and foremost is going to be dealing with COVID and the COVID-19 and the pandemic. I mean, it's amazing that it's been pushed off the front pages, so to speak. It's back on the front pages again this morning, I noticed when I looked at the Times and the Wall Street Journal. But the first order of business is dealing with COVID and a national strategy for working with the states and coordinating with the states, a coordinated policy so that Americans can be in lockstep with one another in dealing with um, with the pandemic, taking precautions. There'll be, it'll be mandatory that masks are worn. Not every American is going to wear masks. I mean, but it's still going to be the, the leadership coming out of Washington is going to be consistent, it's going to be clear, and it's going to be collaborative, I think, with the states. He'll also, if it's Biden in the White House, he'll also give a prominent platform to scientists and to the medical profession to provide guidance and then really speak candidly with the Americans about the direction of vaccine development and when a vaccine is available, the, um, uh, what, when, it, when it's ready, how it's gonna be made available and so on. Anyway, it'll be a, a coordinated policy and you'll have a sense that the national government is doing its best to get things under control. Um, so that's the first order of business and tied to that is gonna be a stimulus. I mean, the $2 trillion stimulus that was passed is a, like a dose that's of medicine that's worn off. There needs to be another stimulus. The um, question is whether it comes through a lame duck Congress. If you've got a president who is feeling, um, you know, uncomfortable because of the outcome uh, of the elections, whether he is gonna put the country first and uh, try to push some stimulus through or not, or whether it has to fall to the new Congress or not. We'll just have to wait and see. I think um, the outcome of the election showed is, is, is pretty indicative that if it's Biden in the White House, he's gonna have a divided Congress to work with, which means he, there will not be uh, a stimulus on the order of $2 trillion, as was being talked about going into the election before Congress went into recess uh, for the elections. So the size of the stimulus is going to be probably significantly reduced. Uh, McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate uh, favor what's been nicknamed a skinny stimulus. And it's probably somewhere between uh, that skinny stimulus and the $2 trillion that will finally see something come out. So those are the two really big orders of business in the, in the short term. In the longer term, some of the issues that you raise will be on, will be on, the, on the president's agenda and certainly on his calendar. Um, the, uh, and, and once again, his ability to, uh, well, Biden put out a very ambitious economic plan. I mean, very ambitious in starting with tax uh, increases for the wealthy, for corporate taxes. In other words, rolling back some of the tax cuts that were enacted under the uh, early years of the Trump administration, uh, rolling back some of those tax breaks. Um, the corporate tax and the tax on the wealthy was reduced from 35 to 21%. Under Biden, he would take that up to 28%. And this would be money that would be then earmarked for some of the initiatives that he laid out. <clears throat> initiatives like in the area of healthcare, uh, education, and uh, a, um, 
sort of pro-green infrastructure program. The um, uh, initiatives are really intended to move the country forward, raise the uh, the economic base of the country, and in the process, provide incentive to grow the economy, to move, uh, increase the number of jobs, move things forward. So it's an economic plan that goes out further than his four-year, than the than a four-year term. It would go as far as it projects out over a, over a decade. Um, so there's uh, would be money in there for healthcare, if there'd be money for education, there'd be money for a number of other social issue uh, oriented uh, initiatives. Um, but it's gonna be difficult because if he's got a divided Congress, getting those initiatives through Congress. On healthcare, it's a very tricky way to go. There's an issue that comes before the Supreme Court, um, you know, within weeks that could um, be very problematic for the future of the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare. So I have to sort of wait and see what happens there. Um, I think where he has a real possibility is with immigration reform. And he is a pro-growth on Im immigration politician. Um, the United States needs immigration for growth. It's said that Without immigration, the U.S. GDP growth is uh, capped at one and a half percent. Immigrants are responsible for a number of new companies that create new jobs. Uh, so the, the reality is it's a country that has been and con will continue to be dependent on, on growth of, 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 of bringing more immigrants into the country and, and uh, engaging them, integrating them in the economy in a real, real uh, forceful way. Uh, on the infrastructure initiative, I think whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden in the White House, we'd have an infrastructure plan either way. Uh, Trump uh, championed an infrastructure program uh, these last couple of years that's gotten um, bottlenecked in Congress, particularly in the Senate, which couldn't come to a consensus on how to pay for it. Um, but the um, under Biden, the infrastructure program would be much more aggressive. <clears throat> it would be green. Under Trump, you wouldn't have that kind of green emphasis. In fact, you'd have uh, probably tax cuts tied to the infrastructure program. You might have um, other program, other initiatives tied to it. Um, but it would be very different in terms of style, but it would still be uh, an emphasis on infrastructure. It's critical. America needs an estimated $3 trillion in infrastructure uh, projects underway to bring the country's infrastructure up to the level that you see in places like Singapore, in Japan, and other countries. Um, so we've got a very, very long way to go and, and um, have neglected that far too long. So I think short-term, long-term, there's a lot to be done. And um, uh, we'd start with COVID and start with the stimulus, but then longer term, having an eye on how we can strengthen the floor of the economy, build out the economy, and in the process, be mindful. And I think this is where a Biden presidency could be very, very uh, strong and make a major, uh, have a major impact, is in the process to be able to 
address some of the issues of inequality. When you think about uh, the Biden proposals on tax cuts, for, on, on ta uh, raising taxes, for example, I mean, the idea there is to bring more, a little bit more into balance the taxes that the wealthy pays versus what the middle class pay and bring that a little bit more into balance so that you have um, <clears throat> you can reverse some of the inequality that's built into markets as a result. So, um, like I say, it's a huge, uh, huge undertaking come ahead for the next president. Um, and, uh, and I believe if it's Joe Biden, he's certainly up to the task. Is your sense that um, the, the large deficit that has been sort of, you know, essential to deal with the pandemic this year, that uh, under a uh, Biden presidency, we're going to see the deficit remain pretty large, especially given all the <coughs> areas where you talked about that there is priority to spend? Uh, and wouldn't that put this presidency on a different path than the past two uh, Democratic presidents? I think of, you know, Clinton sort of, you know, taking tough decisions to reduce the deficit and the debt, Obama inheriting global financial crisis and then spending the last four or five years of his presidency improving the debt and deficit situation. Would that not be the case in Biden's uh, administration? Right, right. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful quote um, from Carmen Reinhart. And uh, Carmen is now the chief economist at the uh, IMF. World Bank. But she uh, now, pardon me? She's at the World Bank. And at the World Bank, sorry. Uh, she famously has said, you know, referring to COVID, first we've got to win the war. And after that, we can worry about paying for it. And I think that's really where we are with America. Now, yes, there's going to be a uh, more deficit spending under the Biden administration. There would also be more deficit spending under a Trump administration. Those, those two sets of numbers don't, they're not drastically different. And there's a Moody's analytics piece that has gone deeply into that issue. And it's um, worth taking a look at if you want to have a, have a, a look at, at the numbers precisely. But um, I, so I think that deficit is, is going to be part of American government life uh, for the next, certainly the next, the next four years. And where it's going to come up is if the, it, where it's going to surface as an issue uh, uh, and uh, a political issue is uh, if the Republicans in Congress do an about face and say, we now start to need to worry about the high debt and the high deficit. And they use that as an argument to, um, uh, stall Biden administration initiatives and so on. So it's a, it'll be a political contest over the deficit. But in the short term, it's, it's one of those issues that's lurking in the background. It's not going to go away. It's very important. Uh, Americans are not comfortable being in debt. They're not comfortable with high deficits. They prefer a balanced budget uh, that we had under Clinton. But there's a lot of issues that have not been addressed that need to be addressed that uh, the country needs to address. So it's, um, you know, it's an issue in the background. It's definitely not going to go away. It'll come up and uh, it'll be uh, debated and it'll be an issue, could very well be an issue as early as the midterm elections, um, but it 
more likely will be an issue four years from now. Right. And now, of course, the additional challenge, you've touched on this briefly earlier, Marsha, which is the polarization. Um, this suppose the you know historic consequential election still you know is not giving any clear mandate to either party either candidates there are so many issues where people are sort of divided right in the middle 50 50. Um, I think we know what Trump's strategy would be even if he were to come back to the office with you know he sort of focuses on his base um, Biden could he be, uh, to paraphrase George Bush back in the days, could he be more of a uniter than a divider? I mean, not sort of obsessing over the base that got him elected, but also reaching across the aisle. Uh, and I want you to touch on this issue also in the context of the profoundly changing demographics in the US. Right. Um, well, I think uh, to, to, be, to be very responsive to your question, I think Biden has no choice but to do that. Now, I also think he has the, he's the type of politician who can do it, um, be that unifier. But on the topic, uh, Timor, of, of uh, polarization, of, of, of this election really pulling the curtain back on the deep divide in this country, I think the polarization that we see is a, is, it goes deeper than the issues. I think it's really structural in many respects. And what I mean by that, it's, it's born of a major, a core demographic change that's underway in the country. And it's a demographic change that's a transition from uh, a majority white society to a multiracial, multi-ethnic society. It's, uh, I think I read the, U uh, the Census Bureau has projected that sometime this year or next year, the number of children who are majority white in this country will be less, will be uh, less than a majority. Uh, the, uh, the majority of children who are white will be no longer the case. It'll be a minority who are white. And it's projected that the whole of society will change from a white majority to a multiracial, multi-ethnic majority uh, come mid 2040s uh, and certainly by 2050. That's a huge demographic change that has, uh, that people don't think about when they get up in the morning, but they think about it except in terms of, am I going to get what I need to get for myself and for my family and the generations that come after me? Am I going to be able to preserve my way of living? Am I going to be able to send my children to school? Am I going to be able to have the quality of life that I felt I was promised? That sense of, am I going to get mine or are you going to get yours and it's going to be at my expense is a, a sentiment that has turned the country really into um, sort of a quarrelsome, quarrelsome nation, I have to say. And it's, it's a, um, I, I think it's, it didn't, like I say, it didn't just happen, but uh, President Trump, one of his real qualities as a politician, and I don't mean this complimentary, qualities as a, as a politician has been his ability to reach down into the uh, body politic, identify his base, hold this base together by uh, catalyzing their fears of really losing out uh, to uh, immigrants, to others who 
may they feel threaten their way of life. And he, he's, he's done that in this campaign very effectively painting the uh, Biden, cam Biden uh, camp campaign and the Biden candidacy as a stalking horse for socialism. And he's, he's done that very fast and, and reinforced those fears that are born of losing out that comes as a result of this demographic change that's been happening. And I think that it's gonna be up to the next president to find ways to help people understand one another. Because if that doesn't happen, it means the democratic institutions can't do what they're supposed to do. They can't reach consensus. They can't find ways and issues around which to come together. And that's very difficult when you have a polarized nation like that, that is the, still the number one economy with influence globally it's very hard to go beyond and exercise that influence, demonstrate that influence, unless you've got your house in order at, house in order at home. Um, George Schultz, who is somebody I admire a great deal, was in the um, cabinets of two Republican presidents, including the Secretary of State, has written a piece recently for a, a publication called The Diplomat, I believe. And he calls the current moment a hinge moment. And I think it very much is a hinge moment. And it'll be up to, if it's a President Biden, to, uh, to bridge, those, bridge those differences. How can he do that? I think that's where his economic, almost, economic program is sort of a F, uh, FDR New Deal program for the 21st century. That's where that is. Where that's where that that economic program is is focused in many respects. If it goes the other way, if the uh, divisions become more deeply embedded in <clears throat> in the in the in the fabric of the society, then I think it's going to be very difficult for um, it'll be a very difficult period of time for for America. I happen to think that. There's opportunity to bring Americans together. I tend to be an optimist, certainly on this score, but I think it's not gonna be easy because there's been changes. Um, there's one thing else I think that I've heard um, a demographer from Stanford talk about, and that is the, um, what he calls the tyranny of the minorities. And he doesn't mean minorities in the um, sense of the demographic minorities, but he means minorities in the, in, in the sense of um, in Congress, talking about a divided Congress, that ability to push forward a minority opinion um, that's built on uh, sentiment from, a, from less than a majority of the people in the country. So it'll be interesting if, Biden's uh, win, however narrow, if indeed it is a win, however narrow, is able to somehow um, provide some ballast to that to that dynamic that uh, that we saw that, for instance, advanced such a conservative Supreme Court nominee to the to the court. Um, that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about. So I, it's a it's a critical time, and and um, I do think that. Uh, uh, Mr. Biden is is up to the up to the task, and uh, people who are informed, who have worked with Joe Biden, and are informed on that score. People like Christy Todd Whitman um, from New Jersey has talked about 
uh, Joe Biden in terms of being a unifier. So I think there's there's uh, confidence out there that he can can do it. Although the task will be great, particularly if it's dependent on moving that economic platform forward, and he's doing that in the face of a divided Congress. Yeah, daunting, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, Marsha, in the remaining time that we have, I'd like to travel a bit toward Asia and our neck of the woods and ask you about some foreign policy and trade policy and investment type implications. Um, sure. So uh, I, I remember very famously, you know, Hillary Clinton talking about how the 21st century was going to be a Pacific century for the U.S. Um, now, Trump has focused on Asia, but, you know, not necessarily for uh, things that have pleased uh, Asian markets, especially when it comes to the trade war. Um, a Biden administration status quo anti to the Obama years, or has Trump moved the needle so much that you can't really go back to uh, comfortable detente? Some of the tension will linger. Yeah, well, I think, I think uh, Biden's going to be his own man. I mean, I think it's going to be his foreign policy. Uh, you might see um, aspects of the Obama uh, foreign policy, but I think it's going to be Biden's foreign policy, particularly when it comes to, particularly when it comes to China. Um, and, and it's clear, I mean, the China relationship is going to be the issue uh, going forward. But, um, uh, you know, in the short term, I think Biden has to really tone down um, issues around the trade war. Uh, he has to reposition the dialogue with the, uh, in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, the, the tariff policies have been bad for the U.S. economy. They've been bad for the global economy. And, and frankly, um, they've really put roadblocks in the, any kind of dialogue that we've had with the Chinese. And as a consequence, um, this is not making excuses for the Chinese, but it's putting in context some of their uh, more aggressive actions, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong and some of the military tensions that we're experiencing over Taiwan and, and so on. But, um, uh, you know, I could see where it's, I mean, it's conceivable that by Beijing says, you know, we're just gonna throw in the towel with the Americans. There's nothing we can do to satisfy them anyway. We're going to go ahead and do what we wanted to do and long since with Hong Kong and, uh, and, and so on. So it's going to be up to Biden to find a middle path. Now, where he's going to differ from Obama on that score is I think he's going to be much more, uh, much less cautious than the Obama uh, White House was on dealing with China. I think he'll be, as everybody is hawkish, as uh, Trump, except his style will be very different. Rather than a unilateral approach to the Chinese, it'll be a multilateral approach. He'll do everything in his effort, and he has good relations, uh, given his experience and his background in the Senate, good relations with all of our allies, particularly in, uh, in Europe, the Germany and, and the transatlantic allies. And he'll bring those along and try to put the full court press on on China, but do it in a multilateral way. Uh, he won't back up uh, in terms of intellectual property, technology transfer, access uh, for American business. Uh, and in the meantime, he's going to also be having to deal with a pretty hawkish Congress and then a sentiment across the United States that has really uh, begun to see and characterize the Chinese relationship in a 
in terms of us versus them. Um, so I think, you know, the China relationship is, is critical and uh, a hinge relationship for many of our other um, uh, our strategies across Asia and I would say even internationally. And they're also, it's also, the relationship is also a hinge strategy for our role and interest that are economic interests as well as our foreign policy uh, geopolitical interests. So I think that's, uh, that's going to be front and center, um, the China relationship. Um, broader, on the broader Asia relationships, I think Japan will continue to be a, a critical ally. Um, uh, he'll try to bring a, a allied approach to dealing with the nuclear North Korea, uh, nuclearized North Korea, um, rather than a unilateral approach that was not successful, I think we have to say. And I think, you know, your region of the world, Southeast Asia, will be hugely important um, for multiple reasons, but uh, one of which is um, your, the region geographically is in many respects a, a potential battleground, the battlefield for uh, the US-China gathering competition. And um, uh, also very important trade and commerce centers, so on, I could list multiple reasons why it's critical to a US-Asia policy U.S.-Asia strategy, and um, uh, so I think broader Asia will continue to be very, very important to the U.S., and I think um, will continue to move in that direction of priorities, of Asia priorities over the rest of the world, not to say that the U.S. turns its back on the rest of the world, but Asia will, will continue to increase in, in importance, I think, uh, on, on multiple fronts. Marsha, you sit on the boards of companies in Asia. You have very active relationship with um, the, the financial uh, community in China. Uh, you will not be surprised when I tell you that US FDI in Asia, as well as in China, hasn't been dented by the trade war. And despite all the talk of decoupling and punitive measures against Chinese companies with respect to market access in the U.S., I think, you know, both interest of Chinese companies in the U.S. and American companies in China continue. Um, do you see the private sector's engagement, uh, U.S. private sector's engagement with Asian economies continue, or are there any structural factors in place which will not necessarily be affected by the election? Right. Well, you know, I think, I think uh, this issue of decoupling, particularly in the financial sector, is you know, taken up a lot of time and a lot of uh, uh, airspace. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's really interesting. It's not happening. I mean, the decoupling is not happening. And I think all you have to do is read people like Nick Lardy at the Peterson Institute and Eswar Prasad of Cornell University. Eswar put it really, really well. He says, you know, economic considerations are going to always override. Uh, virtually always override political concerns. Private capital is always going to respond to economic incentives, irrespective of politics. And I think that's really, you know, that's really what we're seeing. And the Chinese have made it, Beijing has made it, made it more attractive. I think late last year, early this year, they changed the rules for ownership 
of financial services uh, businesses in China, where it had been restricted to joint ventures. It's now, you know, you can have a majority, um, a foreign company can have a majority interest in a, in a company in, uh, on the mainland, or it can even have a, be a wholly owned uh, company. Very prominent examples uh, include PayPal, which uh, has acquired 70% of GoPay. GoPay, it's an online payment system, and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have both are in the either have or in the process of acquiring majority uh, positions in their securities uh, firms that they have that have been joint ventures uh, in China. And J.P. Morgan is has one has gotten approval for a wholly owned um, uh, futures firm. So Vanguard is increasing its uh, engagement. I believe Fidelity is, but I'm not sure of that. Um, so there's a, a raft of examples that illustrate uh, the interest in this market. And it's obvious um, the number of people of the size, it's the most populous country in the world, the growth that's taken and the um, middle class that is uh, uh, in the process of emerging in China, the, the amount of wealth that's there for investing that can be uh, brought from the sidelines and, and invested through proper vehicles. I mean, it's really um, uh, uh, the, the, the focus makes sense given the demographics and given the growth opportunities there. Um, I, and I might, you know, to the point about FDI flows and portfolio flows, they're also um, moving into, they're not lessening, they're continuing, if not, if not accelerating, uh, including, including into the, into the Chinese bond market. And this, I might add, comes with some IMF warnings that this is a market in China that while growing is um, still in need of very major reforms. It's still a shallow market and there's still low liquidity. So there's uh, some pretty interesting risks at play there. So um, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, to your point, it's uh, the inflows are and the interest and the uh, investment commitments are, are continuing apace, if not accelerating. The one example of decoupling uh, interestingly, is uh, Chinese investment into the U.S. Yeah, and, and the reason for that is, of course, there are increasing restrictions, uh, particularly right. in the tech space. Um, Marsha, final question on U.S.-India. Um, it could be an interesting, I mean, speaking of decoupling, it could be an interesting place for some manufacturing from China to go there. It could be an interesting place for the U.S. to play a balancing act against China. It's a large democracy, and I think countries like the U.S. feel comfortable dealing with other democracies much more than they would with non-democracies. Um, uh, are you hopeful? I mean, India is going through a pretty tough time. Pandemic management has not been great. Economy is not doing very well, but the stock market seems to be doing pretty well. Um, so, what's <laughs> your outlook there in terms of you know U.S.-India cooperation and mutual sort of you know room for improvement? Uh -huh. Well, I'm I'm very optimistic about the direction uh, for China for India, and um, again, it's a huge population. It's got huge room to grow. <clears throat> it has a very uh, vibrant technology sector. 
that um, uh, uh, is uh, is moving forward. Excuse me. Um, so I'm very optimistic about about uh, India the domestic economy, and I um, well I might not agree with some of um, Modi's initiatives um, politically, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Kashmir or the the uh, relationship between um, Hindus and Muslims in India. Um, I think he's been a very strong leader for business and for the development of the economy. Um, and then the country, uh, given its geographic location, given its size, given its importance um, historically and, uh, and culturally, is a um, an important partner for the U.S. in uh, in Asia, and I think um, if if it's Biden in the White House, he will continue very much in the traditions of the presidents who come before him, uh, going back to Clinton, who uh, helped really set the stage for a closer U.S.-China relationship, deepening engagement with with India as a as an ally uh, in U.S. strategy in Asia as well as on the economic front and as, as trade partners. And you have to remember, there's a great number of Indian expats in the United States, particularly here in Silicon Valley, who maintain close relationships uh, back to India. And that's a, a fruitful um, exchange, both for what goes on here in the US and also what goes on in India. So I think Biden will really very much continue um, continue what's gone on before. I mean, Trump had a, developed a close relationship with Mr. Modi. They found some commonalities in their approach to governance, I have to say. And um, the Indians particularly liked his uh, sort of hands-off Pakistan and the Pakistani uh, Indian issue, which is um, a difficult one at best. Um, <clears throat> so um, really not so much change there. Uh, at all. And um, I, I would guess, you know, if I just reflect on a Biden presidency in Asia, the biggest change from what we've had is going to be twofold. One, in terms of style, it'll be coherent, it'll be consistent, there'll be a sense of normalcy about it. There will be a lot of uh, delegation to a strong diplomatic corps. He will build out the diplomatic corps, make sure positions are filled. Um, the State Department itself will be rejuvenated. And then I think then on the other hand, the, um, the distinguishing is gonna be the, the emphasis on China. And, but the rest will be pretty much the same, strong relationship with Japan, close, uh, uh, closer ties with uh, perhaps closer ties with South Korea, less emphasis on uh, increasing the amount of money that the South Koreans pay or the Japanese pay for the uh, American uh, military support. Um, and uh, in Southeast Asia, critical importance to the, to the U.S. strategy um, for multiple reasons, as I mentioned before. So I don't think you'll see much change. Um, uh, be interesting what happens with the relationship with the Philippines and the Philippine leader. I think that could be um, take on a different tone. Um, 
Donald Trump as president had an affinity, it seemed, to for these sort of strong-armed um, authoritarian leaders of countries. Uh, I don't see there being much of a conversation between Duterte and uh, Joe Biden, uh, except where uh, the relationship is uh, has history, has long-standing, has economic ties, has uh, uh, cultural ties through the um, people to people and that sort of thing. So um, uh, it's a long-winded answer to your question about US and India, and I went off on Asia, but as you mentioned, I'm very involved with um, uh, in, in Asia still. Uh, I was um, uh, for about 10 years of my career in and out of Asia, good, good bit building the um, Asia platform for the institute I ran for those 10 years. And since then, I've been fortunate to be on um, corporate boards that take me deep into the um, into Asian Asian uh, economic issues and demographic issues and uh, social issues, people to people issues. So I'm very excited about what happens in Asia and about the potential always for the U.S. engagement in Asia. Well, that was a perfect roundup to a very uh, insightful conversation, uh, Marsha Vanderwerk. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks also to our listeners. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 35 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.